it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. Featuring former Major League Baseball umpire Joe West. For six decades, no one has seen more baseball than Joe West. And now he shares those stories with you every week right here on the Podcast Heat Network. Now listen, uh, Joe West is asking the Reds to leave the field. I guess maybe... As a form of security. Well, Joe West is not going back behind the, the catcher. So what is he doing? He, he wants to throw him out or what? He's not going to back away from confrontation. It's just not in his makeup. Who, which guy are we talking about backing away? Well, come to think of it, it's both guys. <laughs> Somebody's been tossed, and here comes Cox. It was Bobby Cox who threw the helmet out there. Off the umpire, oh. and that's a foul ball. Joe West gets drilled, and he appears none the worse for it. <laughs> He's a strong man. Nice. Now Joe's going to give him some argument because Mark's saying, "Why do you do?" Joe, just get over there and umpire, will you? Yeah. Just get over there and umpire. No. That's all. It's 5460. The Joe West Podcast. Here's Joe West and your host, Mike Claiborne. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne sitting in with the great Joe West, 5460. That's how many games he had a chance to umpire in the major leagues. And first of all, welcome. It's, this is going to be a lot of fun. 
Oh, yeah. It has to be fun or we don't do it. I agree. We are too old to start not having fun is the way I look at it. So many things to talk about. We're going to have this podcast. We've got some great guests that have lined up for us over the next few weeks that we invite everybody to talk to and talk with and talk about. And uh, first of all, let's talk about Joe West. 54-60. That, that's a lot of baseball games. A whole lot of baseball games in the major leagues. But your career started well before that. And for some of our listeners who don't know, you were a quarterback, a really good quarterback. <laughs> well, I had a good team. <laughs> okay, well, you had a good offensive line, and they made you yeah. look good. Yeah, in fact, the first time I ever got the award for most valuable player, I gave it to the offensive line. <laughs> See, you know what? That, that's better than buying them dinner. It's, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper, I bet. Absolutely. <laughs> so talk, talk about how you got into the, the, the whole sports business. I, I mentioned you were a quarterback. Played college football, if I'm not mistaken, still holds some records at Elon? Well, I think they've since been broken because back then it was all uh, th- three yards in a cloud of dust. So uh, I set the record for uh, best percentage passing, most touchdowns, most completions in a game, and it's since been broken. Of course, that was in the early 70s that I did all that. So, And uh, like I talked to Paul Krause all the time, who's a Hall of Famer for the, the Vikings, he said, yeah, I intercepted 81 passes, and, and that was back when they didn't throw passes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny you say that because there are some records that won't be broken in every sport, but I think the NFL stands. I, I look at, like, Dick Knight Train Lane, yeah. 14 interceptions in a 12-game season. So while they play more games, there are more opportunities, but teams say, hey, we'll just throw at the other guy. Because they don't have two Dick Knight Train Lanes no, on the field. No, and, 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 the, and the coolest thing about that is – uh, even Lombardi told Bart Starr, don't you throw it down the middle when Paul Krause is out there. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Krause was a big-time yeah. hitter. Uh, he's yeah. a great, he is a great – he was a Hall of Fame. Like you said, 81 interceptions, that's a lot. I don't care what era. Well, here's a cute story about him. And, and Dave Casper was, was living in uh, Minnesota at the time. And this is when I passed Bruce Fremming for the, for the second place on the all-time list for games worked. And uh, so – I'm going to break this his record in in Minnesota, so we had a night off. We're going to Manny's, which is a nice steak. If you if you see any airline book that says best steakhouses mm-hmm. in America, Manny's is going to be one of you know. So we invite Paul Krause and his wife, and we invite Dave Casper and his wife, and the other three umpires, and so we're going to have dinner at Manny's. So we go in and we sit down, and, and sure enough, they bring out this uh, this menu. The menus at Manny's are. They're, they're like a scroll. They're just, you know, like three-by-four menus, you know. And they bring me this little spiral ring notebook for my menu, right? So I'm thinking something's wrong here. I don't get a menu like everybody's. So I open it up, and it's in Braille. <laughs> <laughs> so Sending a little message I, to I looked They around. obviously knew who the umpires were that I night. Saw, I saw everybody in the room la- laughing at me, staring at me. <laughs> so... Of course, I, I told her, you know, I said, that's not funny, you know. And, and Paul Krause says, well, what do you mean it's not funny? So I threw the little Braille menu at him. And his eyesight was so bad he couldn't read the bumps on the page. He didn't know it was Braille. <laughs> hey, you know, you mentioned Paul Krause. One of the neat things about your career as an umpire, you get a chance to meet a lot of people. Oh. And we'll talk to a lot of those people along the way. Uh, before we get into your career, talk a little bit about how many people that are famous, people that are recognized, little do they know they know Joe West? Well, I, I think 
some of the cutest things were were like what happened at the ball game in Chicago where I broke the record for most games was the Oak Ridge boys called the White Sox and asked if they could sing the national anthem. <laughs> and uh, Emmy Lou Harris showed up. Uh, Mickey Gilley and Johnny Lee couldn't be there because they had an, an event. Uh, T.G. Shepard was supposed to be there, but he couldn't come, but his, his, his manager did. Uh, Kevin Costner's manager came, and Kevin sent me a, a video text uh, congratulating me. Billy Bob Thornton sent me something, and uh, uh, George Bush, the young, young Bush, George W., sent me a congratulatory uh, letter, and Jackie Autry, Jean's widow, she sent me a, a nice letter. And it's just Peter Ubroth actually flew in for the event, and you know who else was there was uh, Walt Jockety, and he's he's now working for the Reds. They weren't even playing. He just happened to show up just he, because it was he, you. He was there because of me and because Rusa was a longtime friend of his, and and I mean it was funny because. Uh, the owner of the White Sox says, Joe, I know you need a lot of tickets, but I can't give them to you. <laughs> you got to make a buck here. That was man. the most yeah. expensive game I ever worked. <laughs> so you basically worked for free that night. Yeah, a, a lot more than free. <laughs> but uh, it, it's unique. I met presidents. I met, uh, I remember one day we're at, uh, in Washington working the Nationals, and there was this great big guy standing over by the Nationals dugout, and he had a uniform on, and he had a beret on, and I didn't, I didn't recognize the fork stars on his collar he was a he was a major general in the army his name was Ordiarno and uh, I took him to home plate to meet the other umpires and I just walked over took him home I I didn't know he was the army chief of staff (laughs) good good guy to know so the next next time I saw him was in Washington again and he 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 shook my hand he gave me a a, what you call a challenge coin challenge coin right and uh so I always carry that because that outranks just about everybody. You know, there's, there's only one guy that probably has a little bit more juice, and he sits in that big house down the street. So I well, think no, I, there's one other that's bigger, and that's uh, and I did get one of those coins too from uh, a guy who gave a, a speech about uh, uh, there's only two people that ever died for you, uh, Jesus Christ and the American GI, and that's the story I tell every time I do a, a, a show when, when I get get in with the band and I'm. I usually finish with The Fight Inside of Me by Merle Haggard. And I tell the story about, uh, you know, when I, when we all worked in San Diego on, on the weekends on Sunday, one of the San Diego players would buy tickets for the sailors and the Marines to come to the game. And then about the third inning, they'll play anchors away, and all the all the sailors will get up and cheer, you know, and it's kind of cool. And the next, the next half inning, they'll play anchors, I mean, uh, the Marines hymn, and the Marines will stand up and sing every word. And it just brings a rush. You, I mean, you get goosebumps when you when you feel that, and you have to realize how lucky you are to live in a country where our entertainment is this: baseball, football, whatever. And and then I always tell the story that uh, Tony Blair was asked by a member of his parliament in Great Britain, "Why do you always take up for the Americans?" And he said, "Well, there's two reasons. One is you look at how many people are trying to get into a country, and how many people are trying to get out." And then you have to realize only two people ever died for you, Jesus Christ and the American GI. One died for your soul and the other died for your freedom. And then I'll start with the, uh, you know, the fight inside of me, which is an old Merle Haggard standard. But, uh, and, and, and it's unique that when you, when you go over things like that, we are the luckiest people in the world to be living here, you know. Not only because our entertainment is baseball or basketball or football, but 
because we have the military might to protect ourselves from. You know, as many years as you worked in San Diego, and I've seen that situation where the Navy and the Marines mm-hmm. are sitting there. I've never seen them, you know, when you get them off the street or get them somewhere else in a more quiet zone, they kind of step up for their their, their branch of the service oh, yeah. a little bit more. And it could be a little spirited, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. But it is a fun thing. It's every Sunday yeah. they, they come out. Every every time we've ever been there on a Sunday, it's always been those guys. And they're young. They get out. It, it's a lot of fun. And, oh. and you're right. They, they do a phenomenal job, and they've been doing it for the last 200-plus years, and, and hopefully they'll do it for a lot longer. All right, I want to ask you, 5460, 50, and you think about, that situation first of all how did it start what what gave you the bug but the other thing is this i'm not sure if many kids wake up saying i want to be an umpire when they grow up so what drove you to say i want to be an umpire well i had a football scholarship and I, i'll never forget the my first scholarship was from east carolina where mike mcgee came to the house and he's sitting down with my parents and he said, I'll, I'll give your son a, a full ride. I'll pay for his books. I'll pay for his tuition. I'll pay for his meals. And my mother said, just a minute. You'll pay for his meals? <laughs> and he says, yes, ma'am. She turned to me and pointed her finger at me and said, you will play football. <laughs> so, that, that was, so she kind of decided that was, your, your that fate. That was what happened. I had to play football. But but that paid for my college education, you know. And, and then... McGee left East Carolina and went to Duke. Well, I wasn't smart enough to get into Duke. So Elon had given me the other scholarship, so I transferred to Elon College. And uh, the football coach wouldn't let me play on the baseball team. And there was another umpire from Elon College, Drew Coble, was an American League umpire. He was on the baseball team at, at Elon when I transferred there to play football. And they wouldn't let me play until spring practice was over so most of the baseball season was gone by then so i used to go umpire the local high school games in the area and this guy named malcolm sykes saw me umpire and he said you know if you're going to do this y'all learn how to do it right (laughs) so he took me to clinics and he taught me little things like you hold your indicator in your left hand you take your mask off with your left hand you pull the mask away from your face before you pull it up so your hat doesn't come off and that doesn't sound like a big deal but it is because if you pull your mask off and your hat falls over your face, you don't see the plate, home plate. It's a disaster. So I tell everybody I used to practice in front of a mirror, you know, hours a day taking my mask off. And, you know, in 44 years, my hat never came off. Practice makes perfect. That's that's right. And my brother used to laugh at me. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, because. You don't ever hear about people practicing to be an umpire. Just like the b- baseball players practice every day in spring training, the whole nine yards. Umpires have to get their work in somehow, and it starts well before they get to the ballpark. Well, yeah, and here's here's the crazy thing. It took us years to get baseball to give us the replays to review our work. I mean, years. Hmm. We were We were in the middle 80s before they would let us look at replays of our work. They wouldn't give them to us. I mean, that's how... So how would you be critiqued then? If you, they, if, if you couldn't be critiqued by anybody unless they saw you with a naked eye. And, and that's... I mean, we had great supervisors at the time. We had Eddie Varga. We had uh, Al Barlick. We had uh, Bill Haller, who's local here in St. Louis. Uh, but... Uh, and and they were the kind of people that would, would help you along the way. But if they didn't see you 
you know, but once a year, how could they help you? You know, so one of the one of the coolest things is like this instant replay. When it came in, we had umpires that didn't want anything to do with that because they said, well, the, the instant replay will take our job away. No, how's it going to take your job away? It's just the extra umpire in the booth helping you see what you didn't see. And when we convinced people that or the umpires that's what it was going to be, then then they welcomed it. You know, to, to even touch on that more. I think it also proved how many times they get it right. Oh, gosh, yes. And, and when you unique. look at guys in the 95, 97 percentile, I mean, that says a lot about how good these guys are. Well, they, they spent $45 million to put a replay system in to prove that we were 99% right on the basis. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay because now you don't have the situation where they say, well, this umpire cost me the game. You know, I remember going to Drew Coble's wife's funeral and who's sitting in the back row but Don Denkinger. And uh, I was a little late for the ceremony, so when I got there, I, I went and sat in the back row with Don, and, he, and we had just negotiated the replay deal. And he says, where the hell were you when I was working? Yeah. Where, where was he in 85? <laughs> I, I know there's one place yeah. I'd like for him to have been. Hey, for, for you, um, you, you got the bugs. It bit you or you bit it? as far as the, the interest, because you had someone who took an interest in you. So, you, as I mentioned, you didn't start off in the major leagues. Oh, and no. You mentioned you worked a lot of games. And I think umpires or officials always have the side hustles, whether they're doing high school or college or little league. It, it makes no difference. You have to get reps. So when did you say to yourself, okay, this is something I really want to try and do? Well, because of the, the football career, I – could work legion games and high school games and summer games and stuff but uh the i think the uniqueness of it was uh when uh when sykes would sit me down and talk about little things um a lot of it was how to handle situations which is paramount in what an umpire's job is you know uh in fact uh, i can relate this to a couple of different things but he would he would say sometimes it's not what you say but it's how you say it and a lot of that is the deportment of how uh, things are carried on in the field and i think a lot of what we have in society today is because people don't really grow up understanding how other other people have feelings and we don't understand that you know in society today we're way too lenient with with people getting away with stuff that He's, I don't want to deal with it. And when you're an umpire, you can't do that. I mean, if you don't control the game, they'll run over you. They'll completely run over you. And I, I look at baseball as part of the society of America we have today. When things get out of hand, it's because we didn't put our foot down at the right time. And many times, in fact, I can remember when, when Donald Trump was running for president and I, Jim Hannafin was talking about him, he says, you know, he, he just can't shut up. I said, well, he needs to go to umpire school. And Hannafin said, well, what do you mean? I said, he needs to learn how to argue and when to argue and when not to say anything. You know, he was, and Hannafin goes, you know, you're exactly right. <laughs> hey, better, you know, it's it, they always say, you know, have good eyesight, be in position, be able to make the call and get it right. How important is it to be a good listener? Oh, absolutely. That's paramount, you know. I mean, there'll be times that they'll come out and there'll be something that happened that, that maybe you were out of position to see. 
and then you can go ask your partners for help. You're, you're, you have three responsibilities as an umpire. And the first one is to the game of baseball. Now, that doesn't mean the commissioner's office. That means the game, because without the game, we have nothing. Your second responsibility is to your profession, and that might not mean the union. It means your profession as being an umpire. And your third obligation is to, know, to do what you know is morally honest and correct in your heart. And if you do those three things in that order, nothing you do will be wrong. You might get killed, but nothing you do will be wrong. <laughs> They'll say nice things at your funeral. Don't worry about it. You'll be all right. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, for you, as I mentioned, you, you started umpiring. You did all games in, in anywhere you could find one. Money was never good, I'm sure. But for you, as a major league umpire, people know Joe West for being around longer than anybody else, doing a great job, and you've been involved in so many situations. Uh, with regard to World Series and things like that, who was the first person you you ejected? And I'm not not talking about the majors. Who was the first person who you had that sort of disagreement with that you felt one of you guys didn't need to be there? Well, I was working for the Recreation Department in Greenville, North Carolina, and I kicked Josh Weeks' younger brother out of the park for throwing a Mountain Dew can at somebody. (laughs) 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 But... And Josh and I are still friends, but that was his younger brother. <laughs> and you know, and I, I've seen those situations where, when you get thrown out of the game, that doesn't mean you have to sit in uh, sit in the dugout. You oh, have no, to leave you're, you're the, gone. within the eyesight of the umpire. I mean, you have to cross the street. Yeah. You can't be anywhere near that. Yeah, one of the, one of the funny stories is Bobby Valentine went in and put on a mustache and came back out and sat on the. He got fined. He got killed for that. <laughs> I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Bobby Valentine. First year he managed in the American League, got kicked out like 15 times by 15 different umpires. <laughs> well, at least he, he was equal opportunity. He's equal opportunity. This is 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne. We're talking with Joe West. All right, now let's move on. You get out of the rec leagues, and now you say to yourself, I really want to do this. When did you get the bug as far as Major League Baseball and really feeling like this is something I want to try? Well, you know, I was umpiring college games when I was still in college. And then um, uh, Sykes arranged for me to go to the umpire school, and one of the lead instructors was a guy named John McSherry. And uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience uh, to go to the umpire school. It's like a boot camp. It was like five or six weeks of boot camp that you would go through and and I ran laps more than anybody at the umpire school. <laughs> but 
<clears throat> I think it. I think that was a good thing. But uh, <clears throat> there was. It was quite a quite an experience. I mean, Eric Gregg was one of the instructors. Uh, Nick Brimigan was there. Uh, Jim McKean was there. Uh, Richie Garcia was one of the instructors. Steve Palermo was there. All, I mean, these are all good umpires. You know that. They were teachers at the schools. So, so take me to, through that. I mean, you, you mentioned boot camp, and again, umpires, we see the finished product on the field, but there's a lot of things that go oh into my. it. So give me a day in boot camp and the things that we probably take for granted as fans. We see guys in a blue suit, and, you know, he makes a call yes or no. And Well, in the mornings, they, they would have you do calisthenics, and then after the first half hour, they would put you in the classroom and then go over the rules. And – that's that's the crazy thing is not only do you need to know the rules you need to know how to apply them so that's part of the thing and i'll never forget i'll never forget frank pulley and larry Depp. larry was an american league umpire frank was a national league umpire and they got to talking about i i, I carry this string in my pocket so i can measure whether the bat's too long and frank would go well, why didn't you just use home plate it's 17 inches <laughs> And I mean, it was hilarious to just hear them go at each other, you know. And and you think that a ball player can chew out an umpire? You've never seen it till you see umpires chew out an umpire, you know. So, I'm sure. But uh, the first morning sessions were usually about the rules, and in the afternoon they would go over plays and scenarios, uh, balls hit to the outfield, and of course they're teaching you uh, at the umpire school how to umpire the two-man system. Because when you come out of the school, that's what you're going to be doing. They don't teach you the four-man system. In fact, if you look through all your annals of history and, and baseball lore, you'll realize that there's never been more than 400 umpires since the inception of baseball. So that's Now, think about that. There's never been 400 umpires in the major leagues. Well, I was going to ask you about that because – there's a stat that says for all the people who play baseball, little league, high school, college, minor leagues, less than 5% of all the people who've ever played baseball ever put their foot in a batter's box for one at bat. So I would think that that's when you think about all the umpires, because normally you're going to need at least two, but we get to the, the larger scale leagues, you're going to probably have three and hopefully four and you think about all the ones on all the fields around this world. Yep. We figured out there was a million umpires any given day around the world. And that's how we marketed the West Fest that I designed. <laughs> well, we, we just want 10% of them. <laughs> that's, all we, that's all we need. And, and, you know, but think about that. And, and there's so many guys who have a passion for it. Don't you have to have a passion to do oh, this? Oh, absolutely. Well, and you have to appreciate the game first because – if you don't appreciate the game and you don't respect the game and you don't want to protect the game, then there's no business getting in it. But uh, here's a perfect example. You're talking about the numbers. You've seen the movie 42, the Jackie Robinson movie. Well, there was only one thing that wasn't accurate in that movie, and that was the number of umpires. Did you notice every game he played there were four umpires? When Jackie Robinson broke into the big leagues, there were only three umpires in the National League. A lot of people don't realize that. You go look, you look it up in in uh, retrosheet.org, which we were talking about earlier. You you look up Jackie Robinson's first game, and there'll be three umpires listed because that's all they hired at the time was three umpires. And in the beginning, 
when baseball started, there were only two. There was the plate umpire and the base umpire. So that's why there's only been 400 in the entire history of baseball, because the first 20 years, they only had two for each game. And the next 30 years, they only had three. And then they finally got four umpires back in the 50s. So that's why there's so few that have ever umpired in the, in the major leagues. You remember your first paycheck when you got into boot camp? Because, you know, it, some people say it's a labor of love. No, it, yeah, it's true because there's not a lot of money in the early stages. I got of, 500 a month. A month? A month. That's uh, obviously uh, before after taxes. Uh, no, that was before, but... <laughs> So after taxes, you you were really scuffling. Oh, it was unbelievable. You had to have a job in the winter, you know. And uh, what were some of the jobs you did? Well, a substitute taught. I uh, bet you were a beauty. Oh, yeah. I sent a lot of people to the office. <laughs> <laughs> this is how the whole ejection thing—you started to develop that skill. Well, you know, when I played football at Elon, we had uh, we would dress out eighty players for the games. And I mean, full gear, 80 players. So we get, we get in the playoffs, we're going to play Abilene Christian. And it was the final game that I played in college. And uh, so the captain of the defense, Nick Angeloni, came to me and he says, they're, not, they're only going to let us dress 50 players. And I said, well, that's not right. These guys sweated and toiled like we did all year. I mean, you... What do you mean you aren't going to dress it? He said, yeah, and they can't go to the game either. It was in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I said, well, that's not right. And uh, he said, well, what do we do? I said, tell him they either dress and they go and they can wear their jersey on the sideline or we're not going. So I tell people that was my first act as a union activist. <laughs> <laughs> and once the bug bit you, you couldn't get rid of it. I'm going to get to that, the union involvement that you had because uh, you you ran, uh, you were running the union or basically you were leading the union in a very challenging time for, for your profession. And, and I'll ask you about that in a bit. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? Savewithconrad.com can help and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. All right, so you're in the minor leagues, and that's that's got to be a challenge. You, you're not making a lot of money. You probably have a crossroad moment on, do I really want to do this? Tell me about the minor leagues and how, how that worked out. You know, I was really lucky because I graduated first in the class. They sent me to the long A league instead of the short A league. And what I mean by that, my first job was in the Western Carolina League where they played 140 games. And what I, were you making? We were making it per game or there was just oh no, a flat you, out? You made you made 500 a month. Okay. And uh, so when we worked in the Western Carolina, we we rented a place and we would drive out every day to the ballpark. We, we lived in Columbia, South Carolina, which didn't have a team. And it was an hour and a half to Charleston. It was an hour to... Gastonia was an hour to Greenwood. It was, you know, so we were in the middle of the state. So that's how we made ends meet. And one guy got paid for driving his car, and uh, and um, that that's how you made ends meet. You you couldn't you couldn't afford to stay in hotels because you weren't making enough money. Now the minor leagues have improved enough where 
the minor league ball clubs have to pay for the umpires' hotel rooms. So now, whatever money they get is over and above that $500 stipend that we got. But, but the highest-paid umpire in the minor leagues doesn't make $25,000 a year. And that's, that's why we're losing quality people. You know, you, you have to pay them something where they can at least live on, you know, live on it. You know, we're seeing it now with baseball trying to do something for the minor mm-hmm. leaguers. And you think about all the guys who had to walk away from the game, and they may have been good players, maybe needed a little bit more time, but they had a family at home, they had other obligations. They just couldn't afford to play anymore. Well, yeah, McSherry used to keep a, a total. He'd say, wives won, baseball nothing, or baseball won, wives nothing. You know, he kept a total. <laughs> hey, who, who was your biggest supporter in the early days? And, and maybe, and I don't know if you ever had a moment where you really started to question yourself about, man, I don't know if, I don't know if I can do it, but then you said you were first in your class, so obviously somebody saw something in you. But did you ever have that moment where you were like, I don't know? And did you ever have that mentor other than the person who discovered you? Well, I, I was very lucky that early on Al Barlick took a liking to me because, you know, I was I was known as a hard ass. I was No, you know, I never heard that about really? you before. <laughs> this is breaking news. I'm glad we're having this podcast. <laughs> But Barlick took a liking to me, and I can remember one of the first games I ever worked in spring training, and I had to kick out Chuck Tanner. And and Tanner was screaming, you'll never see the big leagues right then. And stand, standing behind the screen with his hands through the, the screen, he's yelling at Tanner, this kid will be here when you die. <laughs> so, and he was the supervisor of umpires for the National League. So I felt kind of good, you know. You thought you had a future after that. Because sometimes they just sit there and say, well, he may be right. Yeah. All right, so let's move, let's move to uh, the point in your career where you get the call. And, you know, it's one of the great things we see in sports, especially in baseball, when that youngster comes in the manager's office oh, and you and he says to him, I got I have to talk to you and they set you up sometimes. Some yeah. of these kids go in thinking, I'm about to get sit down or whatever. What was it like? Tell me about when you got the call. Well, I was working the instruction league. And that's where they send the prospects to work a sixty day season in the winter. And the National League was looking at this kid Ike Brown, who was a ball player with the Detroit Tigers. And they had brought Ike to work in Instruction League to see if he could have any, you know, chance of being an umpire. And Ike was, he had good judgment. He was a ball player. He knew what was going on, you know. But he had never been to umpire school. He hadn't, there's a lot of things he didn't know about umpiring. And, and as a ball player, he really didn't know all the rules. So I'm working with Richie Garcia who was the first base summer, I'm the third base summer, and Ike was working home plate. And something happened, I forget what the play was. And Mike, I mean, uh, Ike didn't rule it right. So I went in and fixed it. Well, I didn't know that Fred Flagg was from the National League was sitting with Barney Deary, who was the director of umpire development. He said, I don't want that Ike Brown. He said, I want Joe, that guy. You know, He didn't even know my name. Right? <laughs> The other guy. Yeah, and, and Barney said, well, you can't have him. He's in, only in double A. He said, well, then promote him. So he took out an option on me right there sitting there. So I, I was at the right place at the right time. You know, and 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 I didn't know that till years later when they told me what happened and how it progressed. 
And so before the season was over, I worked that instruction league. Then I went to the Southern League. And because uh, Fred Flagg wanted me to get a cup of coffee in the big leagues, he said, well, you got to promote him now. So I worked like 15 days in AAA, and then they brought me to the big leagues. And this was September of 76. And Who my made fr- the call and told you you were going up? Barney Deary, who was the director of umpire development, you know, and uh, and it was it was unique, you know. They had taken me to spring training the year before. I worked in St. Petersburg. I worked the Mets and the Cardinals, Cardinals. and whoever, you know, and uh, but and and it was really funny because Fred Flag says, "How many games you work?" I, and I told him, and he he took out his checkbook and he wrote. Joe West, and he wrote the number of days for per diem and handed me the check. I mean, that's the way they, they did right. things back then, you know. <laughs> hey, tell me about the spring training game. You and I talked about this the other day. Um, Cardinals and Mets, and Ron Fairley. Hey, was, it one of your, was it your first game oh, in spring no. training? This was, this was that spring, though. That spring, okay. Yeah, they had a, a B game, and they sent me and Dutch Renner to work the game. And... Uh, so we exchanged the lineup cards at home plate, and the Cardinals didn't hand me a lineup card. I said, well, where's the line? He said, this, it doesn't matter. Fairley's going to hit third, and Reggie Smith's going to hit fourth every inning. I went, okay. You know? <laughs> Whatever. Well, and it was because they hadn't had any at-bats. Mm-hmm. And so the first inning, uh, Reggie doesn't get the bat because Ron made the last out. <laughs> In the second inning, I think Reggie hit a ball. And in the third inning – uh, fairly got hit in the arm and they took him out of the game the game was over <laughs> did you get pulled pay full freight that oh day? absolutely <laughs> <laughs> but they, the only reason they played the game was so these guys could get at bats you know and I remember the first year I, I worked in spring training uh, Carl Yastrzemski's batting in, for the Red Sox it was in Tigertown that was my first camp was Lakeland and uh, he's uh, the third hitter First inning of the game, and it, they had a lot of rain that spring, so all the big leaguers were coming down. I mean, the first pitchers I had in Tiger Town were Mickey Lolich, Joe Coleman. I mean, I didn't have minor league pitching. I was, I had big league pitching whenever I. It was ridiculous because they were all trying to get their innings in, you know. And uh, so Yastrzemski's batting in the third spot in the first this game on the big field, which was a big deal if you get to work on the big field instead of those little. You know. Little League Diamonds. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the first first pitch to Yastrzemski is over the inside corner. The whole ball is over the corner, and I, I called it a strike. He stepped back, and he said, that damn ball is a foot inside. Well, I'm I'm right out of umpire school. I'm a football player. I don't care if you're Babe Ruth. You're not going to tell me that. I ripped my mask off. I started screaming at him. Well, the whole the whole Red Sox dugout empties onto the field. We'll take care of it. He's not going to say another word. He'll, we, he's just here for it at bat, right? <laughs> so, sure enough, the catcher was Teddy Brazil, longtime minor league player. So he moves inside, thinking you strips. He gave him a bunch of grief on that pitch. Why do you see this one? You know, and uh, just as the pitcher gets midway in his his delivery, you strips. He steps back about a foot and a half in the batter's box. And now that ball is over the inside corner of the plate, and he hit it to Orlando. <laughs> and, and as he rounded third base, he looked at me and he winked. He went. <laughs> how, how were you treated when you're a rookie umpire, even in the minors, and then you move to the to the majors? 
how are you treated as a rookie umpire? Because if the cat calls guys can give you from the dugout are priceless, and I'm oh. sure the ones when you step when they step in a batter's box, where it's just a three person conversation and one guy's just listening, that's the catcher. How how brutal and how tough can that be? Well, you, you know, you had certain people that would would pick on a young umpire to see how far you could take it. You know, Tanner was one of those. Chuck Tanner, he'd pick on every young umpire till he realized that umpire's not going to take it. You know, and uh, he he was vicious that way. And yet, Chuck Tanner was one of the nicest people in the world. <laughs> You'd never think that he would be that way, but he would see how far he could push you. You know, and I remember when I was working in Atlanta with John Kibler. And uh, John walked over between ends. He said, uh, when you were in the minor leagues last year, did you kick out 50 ball players?" And I said, no, I hadn't kicked out 50 people in my career. He said, well, they think you did, so don't don't tell them any different. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, many did you, how many did you run over the course of your career? I think it was 196. Were there a lot of repeat offenders? Well, the repeat offenders were Torrey and Bobby Cox and – the, the traditional guys. Or yeah. Weaver never finished the game I was in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for you being that young guy, what was it like to step on the field for your first major league game? You know, I had played football in front of big crowds, and I, you know, I I don't know. In fact, Andy Olson told me this one time. He said, "You're the only umpire that ever came up here that wasn't in awe of the game." And I thought that was well, that's a hell of a compliment, Andy. I appreciate that. But, but uh, he said you're the only guy that when you walked on the field, you weren't in awe of what was going on. You knew what was going on, and you you did your job. And that's one of the greatest compliments I was ever given. It was from another umpire. And uh, how important is it for for body language? Uh, you know, I watch basketball games, and you when the officials come out, they look like they're in charge. How important is that for an umpire oh, to absolutely. walk out to make sure everybody knows I, this is my job, I'm in charge? And Part of that is what they try to teach you at the umpire school is how you carry yourself, how you walk. I mean, I, I can remember um, there was a guy's car salesman out in Norfolk, Virginia. He says, he says, I was in prison for six months. He said, I could tell you how you walked, whether I was going to have trouble, you know, whipping you or not. He said, I could tell by the way some guy walks whether I can beat him or not, you know. And part of that is just human nature. You know, um, if you look like you know what you're doing, and, and that was really funny because the American League for years would hire these behemoth guys, football players, and uh, big men that were 6'4", six, 6'5", six, because uh, Cal Hubbard was a football player, and he was the supervisor of umpires in the American League. And he believed that a big guy had to prove he couldn't umpire, where a little guy has to prove he can umpire. And Barlick was just the opposite. Barlick was the National League supervisor, and he would pick who he thought was the best umpire. I mean, one of Barlick's protégés was Eddie Vargo, who was maybe one of the greatest umpires the National League ever had, but you never heard his name. You know what? No one knows the name Eddie Vargo. You, you've heard of Doug Harvey. You've heard of Al Barlick, but no one's ever heard of Ed Vargo. And Ed Vargo is one of the best umpires we ever had. You know, everybody's heard the name Shag Crawford. Well, you remember that name because of the name. You don't realize how really good Shag was, you know. And his son Jerry was a great umpire. He had 
Joey, his brother in the NBA. In the NBA. You know, Joey was at that game in, in uh, Chicago. I invited him and Jerry both uh, <laughs> to that game. And, of course, uh, Mark Eaton was there, too, the basketball player from the Jazz. Utah. Yeah. yeah. And when, when Mark saw Joey, he says, you cost me the block shot title. You called too many fouls on me. <laughs> it's amazing the memory athletes have. I mean, I'm sure there are guys that come up to you about a pitch or a play a second or whatever that you may not even thought that much about since it took place. But then when they refresh your memory, now both oh, yeah. you guys have, have a, a different story for yeah. it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, let's talk about some of your milestones. Um, you were there for Willie McCovey's 500 home run. The only reason I know that is because I saw it on the scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> Do you pay attention to those sort of things as an umpire when it comes to uh, crowning moments in a player's career or for a team? Well, I was at first. Or do you pay attention to, and here's, I'll take it one step further. Guys got a no-hitter going. You turn around and say, this guy's got a no-no. Well, do you change how you no, look at things? No, what you do is you slow down. You mm. wait a little bit longer for each call. So you're sure you're the reason it was right, you know. Like, I mean, there are only three ways you can miss a play. Lack of positioning, lack of timing, and lack of concentration. Well, it, concentrating means paying attention to what you're doing, taking your time before you make the call, right? Positioning, the ball player can take you out of position. And timing is waiting till you get all the evidence, and just like a judge would, and then call the play correctly. So if you're a second late or two seconds late, that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, but you don't want to be two seconds early. Oh yeah. <laughs> you ever been caught like that? Did it ever happen to you where you're I, in a situation? I remember when we came at in this ballpark here in St. Louis. Uh, our gear's late, and none of our equipment was on time. So we're scrambling to get everything, get on the field. We're like two minutes late to go out for the exchange the line of cards and force is pitching and ted simmons is catching and the first pitch is right down the middle and i'm not ready because i'm i'm rushing you know i call it a ball so ted walks out in front of the plate throws the ball back to force and of course force is going late <laughs> and he came back he, he cut his eyes and he says are we ready now <laughs> <laughs> who, who are some of the funnier guys that you work with behind the plate Oh, well, it's 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 kind of unique that you'd you'd say that because I don't think Gary Carter ever shut up. He talked from the time he came out. I mean, it was unbelievable, and he had two different strike zones: one when he hit, and one when he caught. <laughs> but uh, you know who was really a lot of fun was George Hendricks. 
Silent George. Oh, he was, he was, and when he when he went to coach at, uh, at Tampa Bay, he was the first base coach, and uh, it was it was really cool. They had this uh, they had this little Japanese kid that was playing for him. I forget his name, but he walked. And then after he walked, they brought in the relief pitcher, and so George is at first base. And uh, and I looked at the kid that's on first base. I said, Konishwa, which is in Japanese, hello, how are you? And he turned around, oh, Konishwa, yeah. And I pointed to myself and I said, Shimpan. Oh, Shimpan, Shimpan. And I pointed at George and said, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and George says, don't be listening to him. <laughs> That's one of the great things about the game. There's so many side stories like that. Uh, that as you get older, they stick with you. And George, who never talked to the media. No. But one of the funniest people and one of the best people the game ever had. Oh, gosh. They won the World Series. 82. George goes, goes out and gets in his car in his uniform. Drives home that night. And he's going home because his grandmother was ill and he's driving home. Right? So he gets pulled. He gets pulled on the freeway. He's in his cardinal uniform. The cop says, uh, can I see his driver's license? And George pulls it. He said, you're the right fielder for the Cardinals. Yep. Well, you just won the game. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and he's in his uniform. <laughs> he went right out the gate in right field, got in his car and left. <laughs> I remember it well. Hey, you know, what is it? In umpiring, it's a lot of times being in the right place at the right time. You mentioned McCovey. You only knew he hit 500 because you saw a scoreboard. But what was it like for Pete Rose in that hitting streak? Did you? How many times did you have the plate when he had that hitting streak? I had the plate when he broke the record. I had first base when he tied it, and I had the plate when he broke the record for most consecutive games of the hit. And, uh, and, and Pete's an interesting story. I mean, this is a guy – who did more with less talent than you can say about anybody. I mean, he didn't have a good arm. He didn't have a lot of range. He wasn't very fast. But I never saw him make a base running mistake. I never saw him get thrown out where he made a mistake running the base. He'd get thrown out to let a run score. But he would never, I mean, never made a mistake. And his greatest attribute was he was a winner. When he went to the Phillies in 1980, he changed their entire outlook on how to play because they were already the best team in the East. They just didn't know how to win. And one day we're in Philadelphia, and Mike Smith swung the ball in the dirt, swing and miss strike three, and he just kind of walked off. And Pete's on the top step of the dugout yelling, you got, you got to run. He might throw it away. You go, what are you doing? Nobody yelled at Mike Smith, but Pete did. And he changed their whole attitude of the way they played. And, I mean, he was – there were a lot of people that hated him because he was Charlie Hustle. They thought he was a hot dog or whatever. But I don't think he was a hot dog. I th just think he was a great competitor. And there's a, there's a guy that you would never sign today. You would never – you'd never sign this guy. And I think Whitey Herzog actually said, and if he didn't play on AstroTurf, he'd only hit 240. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you know, you broke in at a, at a pretty young age, and you, you, had, you were on a fast track. 
What was it like to be the youngest guy to umpire in postseason like oh, you did? Well. I mean, because that was unheard of. You had to really pay dues back then in order to get a crack well, at postseason. Postseason, when I started, was on a rotation basis. And that's why I was the youngest guy that ever worked a postseason game. Because they couldn't put anybody in front of me until I had worked it, that it had already worked. And the next year, we negotiated a contract, and that was gone. They had to. But I, I don't know that it, that hurt me because in the, in the 80s, I worked more than anybody in the postseason. <laughs> But when I, my first game in 1981 in the postseason was uh, was because of a rotation system, and we negotiated a pooling concept where everybody got paid whether you worked it or not after that. So, which was a good thing for the umpires. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Hey, you know, we, we talk about milestones. You, we talk about roles. What about guys who have no hitters? And, and you've been behind the plate for a few of those in your career. One, only one. You're on the field for more than that. Time. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nolan Ryan was a no hitter. I was at first base when he threw his fifth no hitter. What was that like? It was unbelievable. It was the ugliest no hitter you ever saw. He walked half a dozen people. It was terrible. But the Dodgers couldn't hit him. He was in the Astrodome, and uh, it was it was an ugly no hitter. But it was a no hitter. <laughs> You'll take it. <laughs> he he claims it every day. I'm and then, sure. And the next. The next day, there were uh, like eight balls in our locker. Nolan Ryan, such and such no hitter, which he was a class guy. He was, he really was. But uh, I can remember it's really funny. I was walking into the Texas Rangers ballpark, and uh, there's this whole crowd of people coming. Out. It was about twenty people, and one of them was Jim Sunberg, the catcher, catcher. and. Uh, he stopped everybody. He said, "This is Joe West, senior umpire in the national or the baseball, whatever." And he—I give him credit. He knew everybody's name in that group. If they were my relatives, I couldn't have told you everybody's name. You know what I mean? But he knew everybody's name. I give him credit for that. And the last person he introduced me to was his wife. And I said, "Well, you probably yelled at me before." And she says, "No, I didn't. But Ruth Ryan sure did." <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that's funny because we we talk about positioning, paying attention, concentration, and certainly eyesight. How thick do you have to have of a skin? Because umpires, you can work a great game, and somebody will find a flaw in one pitch. Oh, yeah. yeah. But when did you figure, I'm going to probably need a thick hide if I want to do this? Well, I, I think you, you don't really realize that the only people that are going to pat you on the back are the people that you're working with or the classiest athlete on the field. I can, some of the best compliments I've gotten have come from the losing pitcher, where they would walk up and say, thanks, good job, you know. Now that means something. The guy throws a no-hitter and says, well, yeah. okay. What do you expect? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, but the guy that loses one to nothing and comes off the field and says, thanks, good job, way to hang in there. That That's an important, you know, kind of an accomplishment, you know. Because he's trying to win, too, you know. And that's another thing. You, As an umpire, you don't ever win. All Somebody's the, pissed off no matter all what. The, all the games that I played and won playing football and all the accolades I got playing football, and I was smart enough to realize that you got to give credit to the lineman who protected you to give you the chance to do what you had to do. But 
you don't win as an umpire. You never win. There's no winning in it. You know, your job is to control the, the game, control the atmosphere, make sure everything's played by the book. And the only compliment you're ever going to get is from your partners. And they come in after the game and say, good job, you know. This is not a career where you're seeking a pat on the back because well, you don't get You're it. in the wrong yeah. business if you think that. <laughs> fans, how much do you hear? Who, who, who's more vicious, the fans or the players? Well, you know, we were talking about the replay a while ago. When, when we put in replay, we thought, well, the ejections will go down. The first month we had replay, ejections went up 30%. Why? Because they, they, they just think they couldn't get enough. No, the managers argued with the replay. <laughs> Why don't you just give them a cell phone and let them call, call New York? <laughs> but ejections went up, you know, and it was because they couldn't argue with the replay. But the greatest thing about replay was not only did it, like you were talking about earlier, show that the umpires were 95 to 99% correct, but it showed the players that the umpires are trying to get the play right. I mean, it used to be you call a guy out and he'd get up, well, he called me out because he doesn't like me. Well, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You know, but the players, instead of arguing now, they put their, their hands to their ears for the earphones and, you know. So today, you've taken away a lot of what used to be the, you know, nostalgic part of the game where they'd argue and get kicked out. What Kicking player out is no – that doesn't help the game. Well, it, it creates attention. Yeah. But, but I, mean, I don't think anybody pays to go see a guy get no, tossed. No, not like hockey where they want to see the – they yeah. fight and, and they, people go to a stock car race and they want to see a crash. I mean <laughs> – yeah. I'm don't. i not going to pay to go to the ballpark to see if Joe West is going to throw somebody no. out of a game. Did you – I mean, I asked you earlier about repeat offenders – who was the one, and I think I know one guy in particular that just said the magic words, and it, it's beyond the normal four-letter words, but they may have <laughs> one line or one comment that you just said, okay, we're done. Well, Is there anybody in particular? I, I'm thinking of one guy. Really? Yeah. Just one? I'm just, I'm just thinking of one off the top of my head. I'm thinking about A.J. Przinsky, spring training. <laughs> Well, AJ was trying to get out of that game. He was, he didn't care what how it happened. He just wanted to be out of there because he was a veteran catcher, and uh, they were getting beat by the Yankees. And uh, finally, he said, uh, "He said I need that pitch." I said, "The ball's low." He said, "But I need that pitch." I said, "Well, let me get this straight. You want me to call a strike because you need it?" And he said, "Why you've been screwing up the pitches all day?" <laughs> so I, I looked at Freddie Hernandez in the dugout. I said, "Freddie, we need we need a new catcher. This was not playing nice in the sandbox." <laughs> Who did you have the most dialogue with before you ran them? Because there's some guys who want to chirp, and and I've seen you give it back. Well, Dick Williams was really funny. I mean, and this is one of the premier managers of our time. And one day at home plate, he says, uh, it doesn't matter what you call. If it goes against me, I'm coming out there. Well, we're right here in St. Louis. Sure enough, Salazar was the third baseman. In a rundown, he threw the ball and didn't get out of the baseline. So the runner runs into him. I call obstruction. I put the guy on third base. Here comes Dick Williams. 
before he could get there, I started screaming at him. You said you'd be out here. It didn't matter if I was right or wrong. <laughs> of course, then all the expletives came out. <laughs> How about um, and, and we and you mentioned AJ spring training games. Guys want to get out of there early. I, I knew one manager would take a bad pitcher on the road in case the game went into extra innings to make sure he'd serve it up so they can all go home. But but what about a guy? Have you ever had a guy ask you, "Hey, would you toss me?" Because I I got no, we, we've had. Plenty of managers do that because they want to fire up their team. What about players? You ever had a player? Oh, well, Rabowski, the first time I ever met him was in an exhibition game at New Orleans. And uh, he comes down the first baseline, and I'm still in AAA, and he's on the big league team. They're playing the, the Pelicans. The New Orleans Pelicans was the farm club for the Cardinals. And so the Cardinals have to play them on the way north or some exhibition kind of deal. So he's walking down the first baseline, and he starts using all kinds of profanity, yelling at me. For no reason? Well, yeah, he wants to get out of there. Ah. So I said, uh, it's not going to work. If I got to stay here, you got to stay here. (laughs) (laughs) What about Jose Cardinal? Oh, that was the the last day of the season, and he got the flu. He wanted to fly home. So... (laughs) So he got kicked out like the first inning. <laughs> Did you ever toss a guy and you thought about it later? You know what? Maybe maybe I might have been wrong on that one. Oh, I kicked out Davey Lopes in the Astrodome one time. And uh, Lasorda came out and said, uh, he didn't say it. I said, well, he didn't tell me who said it. And I'll throw him out and I'll put him back in the game. He said, oh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> How can you just, you know, and that's great. I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen umpires. I think I've even seen you. You'll look in the dugout, and you'll hear a guy chirping, and all of a sudden that guy's gone. How can you distinguish who was getting tossed at that point? Well, you you pretty much need to have all your ducks in a row to pick to pick them off. You know, <laughs> we had a, we had a, we had a game in uh, Dodger Stadium one time, and uh, somebody yelled out of the dugout at Bruce Fremming, and uh, it was all kinds of profanity laced, you know, language and. Frank Robinson was managing the Giants, and I walked over to Frank. I said, uh, Frank, you heard that, right? And he goes, yep, I heard it. I said, you know, somebody's got to go. He said, oh, I fully expect that. I said, well, you're going to pick him out. <laughs> he said, no, I'm not picking I said, well, then I'm going to kick you out and tell the office that you said. You know I didn't say that, Joe. He said, I'm not. I didn't say that, and you can't kick. I said, yes, I can. I'm giving you a choice. You can either pick out who it is or you're going to be ejected. He said, okay, I get it. I get to pick out who it is. I said, yo, just pick out whoever you want. He said, Licio. That was a trainer. <laughs> <laughs> so he picked out the trainer. So the next day, before the game, we walk into the ballpark, and Licio's got all these reporters around him. He's talking. He says, I have never been kicked out in my in my life as a major league trainer. He says, I left yesterday at my manager's request. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you um, – you were a guy that was heavily involved in, in representing the umpires at a time when they were trying to forge their own union and, and really get some things done because we talked about you guys were underpaid for a long time. Talk about why you decided that was something you needed to get involved in. Were, were you just the last man standing where nobody else wanted to assume that or was it something you felt like enough is enough? We, we have to do better than what we're doing. Well, I... And I, I've told Manfred this, I've told Bob Dupay this, just like I told you earlier. 
you know, uh, our responsibilities to the game of baseball. We're supposed to be the protector of the game. We're the only official representative of baseball on the field. So you have to pay us accordingly. You can't, you can't just say, I, anybody can do this, because that's not true. You know, I've, I've told people oftentimes that uh, they look at how an umpire does his job and they say, well, anybody can do this. And that's just not true. It's like the guy says, well, I can ride that horse like Clint Eastwood. Well, you can't. You're never going to be Clint Eastwood. And you watch professional golfers on TV and they make it look so easy. But you look at all the time that they spent getting to make it look that easy. The umpires are the same way. So they should be paid in accordance to what their value to the game is. And uh, that was one of the reasons that I you know, took an interest in it. The strike. Um Umpires lost their jobs, lost their careers. You look back on that. Uh, what could have been done to prevent that? Well, anytime you have lawyers fighting over it to see who's tougher than the other guy, the casualties are going to be the little people. It's not going to be the big people. It's like you take the, the strike that happened just this year. The owners didn't get hurt. The players didn't get hurt. Who got hurt? the parking lot attendant, the guy in spring training, the hotel manager of that small hotel that he didn't sell rooms because nobody came to spring training. They're the people that get hurt. Whenever there's a fight like that, the people that get hurt are the little people. It's not the big guns. And that's that's what's the shame of having a work stoppage or a strike or whatever. Umpires get fired, they lose their jobs. Uh, what was that like? Because the, the livelihood of an umpire and again you're trying to make a decent living you got a family this is like the high water mark for umpires and as i mentioned some guys didn't get invited back once things were settled what was that like well that was bad that was like uh, being in a plane crash and you lose some people a few people walk away unscathed a few people walk away they got hurt and we lost really eight guys that didn't get a chance to come back. Although they did give Frank Pulley and Richie Garcia jobs with the office because they knew what quality people they were. But we had other people that, that refused to come back and work for them because of that. We had people that got their job back and wouldn't come back. Really? Yeah. They dug in that deep, huh? We had five people that refused to come back, didn't want to work for them anymore. And I and I understand that. And it was really funny because they, they asked me, said, well, why didn't you just walk away? I said, well, I'm just going to aggravate him for a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your best story to me this year is if you want to settle the, settle the lockout, just tell Manfred I'm coming back. I'm coming back. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like for you? Um, because you work with the league and, and, and the commissioners closer than anyone as far as representing the umpires. What was that relationship like? Because you had to – put your foot down and they had to put their foot yeah, down yeah and and i think they respected the position i took that baseball has to come first not the commissioner's office not the umpires the game has to come first and they respected that and that's that's why we got along i'm sure that's why tory and i got along because when tory was a manager and a player he was tough to deal with tell me about that relationship because that that's a memorable one and then all of a sudden the next time you see him he's got a shirt and tie on yeah well i mean um, he followed an umpire off the field in Atlanta one time, and I pushed him to get him back on the field. And he went and told the press that I pushed him. And, of course, when the office called, I said, I absolutely did push him. They said, well, okay, well, you can take a two-day vacation. <laughs> and he, and, uh, 
but uh, and I don't think Joe meant for me to get suspended. But mm-hmm. uh, and and what they did was probably best for both sides. Tory got fined for it, so both sides bled a little. Yeah, but uh, I, I think in the long haul, Tory and I got along very well in the working relationship. You know, uh, there were times where he didn't agree with a call I made, but that that's part of being a manager and a player you know i mean when i tell people that i umpired when joe tory played they go really (laughs) (laughs) you don't look that old yeah (laughs) you know we we talk about i want to go back to something you talk about boot camp and the rules um how many players do you think know the rules And, and and how many managers do you think know the rules because most of them and I, I'd even say I'd be one of I, I pay attention to the rules that, that work for me, but you have to know the whole book oh, backwards yeah. and forwards. So, if there's is there a percentage of people in the game that probably don't know the rules, only the ones that really pertain to themselves? Well, the funny thing is, is uh, most of the people that do know the rules uh, try to bend them to their way of thinking. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> I I can remember we were in Montreal one time and. And the ball hit Gary Carter in the shoulder and was going to the dugout. And they're playing the Cardinals. And uh, the guy on second base is going to score on a pitch ball that hit Carter in the shoulder and is going to the dugout. So as it's rolling into the dugout, Dick Williams takes his glasses off, puts them down, he stands up and says, let it go. So Carter stopped. Ball went in the dugout, so he only got one base instead of two. You know, If he picks up the ball, you can't throw him out. So Dick Williams, knowing the rule, said, let it go. Gene Mock was like that, I'm told. Yeah, he was another one. Gene Mock was actually, uh, I think he was coaching was it the Phillies or maybe an American League game. But anyway, when he was coaching the Angels, he had a guy on third base and a guy on first. And the runner on first is stealing on the pitch. So he hit a line drive to right field. The guy's going to be out, right? So Mock tells the guy on third base, score, go now, don't tag up, score. Well, of course, the player thinks, well, if I don't tag up, you know, they can appeal. But Mock knew that if the run scores before they get the third out, then the run counts. And if the infield leaves the field, they can't appeal. So he's screaming at the runner to score. <laughs> Well, of course, the player didn't know that, you know, and he wouldn't know that until it happened to him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you don't have to tag up the score, but they can appeal. But if the team leaves the field, then they can't appeal. What's the one play you've only seen once? Mm. Only seen once? Yeah. The one play, (laughs) Or, or maybe it's a ruling you've only made once. Now I know five thousand four hundred sixty mm. games. That that's a lot of that's a lot of pitches. That's a lot of swings and misses. There's a lot of ball, batted balls. A lot of things have happened, but you know the rules as well as anybody. And the the re- reason there's a rule book because something took place that somebody said we need to make sure there's a rule for it. So I'm of the belief that everything that's taking place in a rule book, everything that's in a rule book, it took place somewhere sometime. Well, we were in a an umpires meeting prior to the season. This is back in the 
late 90s. And we brought up this rule in front of the other umpires that if the first baseman's holding the runner on first, he's in front of the runner. So if a line drive or ground ball or batted ball would hit the runner behind the first baseman, he can't be out because no other fielder could field the ball, right? So we all agreed that that's the right ruling, right? So we opened the season in Dodger Stadium or somewhere, and Mondesi's on first base. Bagwell's holding him on. When Mondesi takes off for second base, Biggio goes to cover the bag. So there's nobody on the right side of the infield. So the line drive hits Mondesi in the middle of the baseline, not directly behind mm-hmm. the first baseman. So I walked over and put him back on second base, <laughs> nullified the out, right? Well, Larry Durker had a fit. <laughs> <laughs> so I explained the rule to him. In fact, Vince Scully is, is killing me on the air. <laughs> so I had to explain the rule to him, too. <laughs> and he apologized the next day that we made the right ruling. The only people that disagreed with the ruling were other umpires. Because we were putting too much of a burden on the umpires to call that where the fielders are, such and such. So they changed it to where it has to be in the vicinity of the first baseman. But that was probably the most memorable I can remember, where I called it play exactly as the rule stated, and they had to change the rule. <laughs> got We'll make sure this doesn't happen again. <laughs> but you see it all the time. You ever kick one, realize you may have kicked it, and now because of replay you can see for yourself. You ever kicked one and went back to that person or manager and say, hey, you know what, I might have kicked that one, or I did kick it? Well, I don't think you would tell the manager that because when you call it, you're calling from your heart. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not trying to, you know, which is the same thing we talked about, about the players believing that the umpire doesn't like them. That's, that's the furthest thing from the truth because the umpires, when an umpire misses a play, he feels worse about it than anybody. You know what I'm saying? So... Uh, I can I can honestly say I've never gone to a guy and said, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> Even though you may have made one. Well, yeah. So you say guys actually accuse you of not liking them, and you say that's not the truth? Even Madison Bumgarner? <laughs> <laughs> the great stare down? I, I don't think people realize he was mad at himself. He, he, I didn't call a pitch earlier that he wanted – and then he threw a bad pitch for ball four, and then he used profanity. <laughs> and so I took my mask off. And uh, even Buster Posey said, uh, what's going on? I said, just sit down. Everything will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here for a little bit, but it'll be fine when it's all over with. And then we went to, I think we went to Dodger Stadium, and Jimmy Rollins slid into third base, and he had a stare down with me. That <laughs> so the stare down. Guys know that if they do anything in a demonstrative manner in the midst of a stare down, that's probably the last action he'll uh, have on the field. That's that day. probably right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's who it's a matter of who blinks first. Yeah, and obviously you have the last blink. Well, it's, it's like the guy said in the, the hunt for Red October. You have to know when uh, when you're playing chicken. You have to know when to flinch. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we've been talking a lot of baseball. I want to talk about something. You know, guys who umpire 
and you mentioned in the early days you had to do a lot of different things but one thing that's always been a constant with you is music and you you produce some albums uh country joe west is what you've been known as a cowboy joe west how did that start where a you had the bug for music b you wanted to continue to pursue it as an as an umpire and c you had success with it well i was i was very lucky because uh I lived in Houston for a little while, and uh, I was what you'd call a gilly rat. I used to go to Mickey Gilly's club out there. And I had written this one song, and I knew Merle Haggard's fiddle player really well, Jimmy Belkin. So I sent the song to, to Jimmy, and he sent it back and says, if you're going to do this, you know, if Merle cuts this, you can't do anything with it. He says, you've already got this other career. You should just put it out on your own and be a novelty thing. And it turned out that's exactly what it was. So uh, by the time he sent it back to me, I had written two other songs, and we'd made a couple of arrangements for stuff that I was doing at Gilly's Club with Gilly's house band and stuff and other stuff. And, and that was another thing. I didn't have to do the rigors and turmoil of touring and all this stuff. I was really lucky because I would go to places like Bobby Mackey's in Cincinnati and I'd get up and sing with the band, or I'd go in, in Phoenix at Handlebar Jays. And uh, John Hobbs was a good friend of mine out of Nashville, and I used to go sing in his nightclubs, the Nashville Palace, the Scoreboard, and there's another club up there uh, that uh, they used to, uh, the Texas Troubadours used to play. It's called the Troubadour, anyway. But uh, and, and I'm sitting in with musicians that played all over the world, you know. Um, one of my best friends up there is randy travis's old guitar player um wayne money and uh it's really funny we went up there one time and he calls me up on stage to sing and he says what do you want to do and he just gotten this guy new guy in the band named joe spivey and joe was a hall of fame fiddle player and so he said when he said what do you want to sing i said farmer's daughter amarillo by morning and uh and uh, faded love he said, we've never done that with you before. I said, you never had a fiddle player either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I looked at Joe and nodded and said, give me a G, and we, we started off. So how'd you get into music? Well, I sent that song to... I mean, but you had to have a, a, a liking for it at some point, was it as a kid? There I was mean, a little boy down the street from me named Louis Gidley. And Louis and I were asked to go out for the Glee Club by our third grade teacher. Louis Gidley and I were the only people in school that didn't want to be in the Glee Club. But we were the only people in that class that had perfect pitch, and we could hear what we were doing. So we were the first ones the lady picked. So, <laughs> well, Louis, now Louis, Louis was a classic. Now, when he was like eight years old, they paved First Street, which is the street that crossed Eastern. It was Eastern and First Street was the corner that Louis lived on. So they had paved First Street with this new asphalt blacktop. And they put this sign in the Gidley's yard that said, Slow Children Playing. Well, the next day that sign was gone, right? So they put another sign up where it was. The next day the sign was gone. So they put a third sign up. And they left the unmarked police car there to watch. And sure enough, as soon as they left, Lewis went outside and pulled that sign right out of the ground, took it in the backyard, and threw it where the other two were. So the policeman followed him. He said, what are you doing, son? He said, there ain't any slow kids on this block. 
<laughs> so, so, so your music career grew over time. So when did you have the time to really start to hone in and say, you know, this is this is a little bit more than just a hobby for me. Well, I really like this. I had a I had a violin player and a steel player named Tommy Melder, and Tommy had it in his eye this idea that this, this is a classic. You, you can perform, you can sing on the road. You, I mean, and he used to go out to a couple of gigs, you know, when I'd umpire, and then we'd go sit in with the band in the local place and and perform. And it was it was a natural for him because he was a brilliant musician. Tommy got killed in a car wreck years ago, but. Uh, in fact, the guitar player on that first album I did, uh, he just passed away. His, his name was Randy Corner. And Randy was such a talented guitar player that when he was 13, he was Gene Watson's lead guitar player. When they played the casinos in Vegas and Reno, they had to have security guards to walk him to and from the stage because he wasn't old enough to be in the building. And he was he was the lead guitar player for Gene Watson. So I've, I've been lucky that I was around talented musicians. Gilly had a blind piano player that played in the house band named Frank Brown. And uh, when I'd walk him to the stage, uh, one of the other players would play Three Blind Mice. And Frank would sit down at the piano and hit a couple of keys and say, they don't know there's just two of us, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> What what's your biggest music thrill? I mean, being a major league umpire and, and pursuing that obviously is a big thing for you. Well, I sang but, on the Grand Ole Opry with the Hee Haw Band. We did a fundraiser for a Catholic school up there. Tex Whitson, who was Merle Haggard's manager, and Sam Lavella, who produced every Hee Haw there ever was, uh, arranged for me to sing with the Hee Haw Band on the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, so I get there and Boxcar Willie introduces me to Charlie McCoy, who was a famous Hall of Fame harmonica player, and he says, uh, said, Charlie, this is Joe West, Major League Army. He says, you know Greg Bonet? I played in a tournament with him. <laughs> so, I mean, you just the number of people you meet along the way, you know. And I said, uh, and then, of course, he's been rehearsing with Loretta Lynn, Vic Damone, uh, Kathy Matea, Ricky Van Shelton. He's been rehearsing with all these people to get all their songs right for this fundraiser. So when I said, well, Charlie, I want to do this song called Don't It Make You Want to Go Home, and I'd like for you to play the intro and the first solo. And he goes, he turns around to the band and says, we finally found someone who knows something about music. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the only guy there that's not a musician. <laughs> Boxcar Willie, he, he meant a lot to you. Yes, he did. Yeah, he was a good guy. And it was really funny when I met his manager for the first time. He says, did you ever notice he has a twinkle in his eye like Santa Claus? And I said, yeah, I did. <laughs> so you guys hit it off. Oh, well, he was something else. He was a very special friend. And uh, it was funny. The first time I met him, I was in San Francisco. And his West Coast manager was a guy named Sandy Brokow, who was ran the Brokow company. He managed everybody on the West Coast. When they would come out there, he'd get them on talk shows and stuff. And Sandy was a big Dodger fan. His dad had bought Dodger season tickets when Dodger Stadium opened. Anyway, so I'm in San Francisco, and there's a knock on my door. And I go to the door, and it's Boxcar Willie. And he's got my Do Not Disturb sign in his hand. He said, if you put this on the door, nobody will bother you like this. 
<laughs> so we chatted. I think we went to breakfast, and then he said, I'm playing the Alameda County Fair tonight. I said, well, i got to work the, the Giants game. He said, yeah, but it's at 1 o'clock. We'll go to the game, and then we'll go do the fair, and you're singing with me tonight. I mean, <laughs> how do you say no to that? You, right? you don't. <laughs> so he did, he does the North Carolina State Fair the next year, and he maybe come up there and sing with him there. It was, but he was just a, a sweetheart of a guy. And uh, I can remember working the uh, the Marlins and the Indians World Series, and Boxcar was fighting cancer at the time. And um, I called his wife and I said. Uh, How's he doing? Is he able to travel? I said, well, we'll find out today. I'm going to take him to the doctor. I said, well, I got tickets for him to go to the World Series if he can make it. So he goes to the doctor's office, and the doctor says, you're looking good, this, that, and the other. And his wife says, well, can he travel? And he looks at her and says, why would I want to travel? She said, because Joe West got tickets for you for the World Series. Okay, can I travel? <laughs> Are you are you amazed at how many musicians and actors are enamored with baseball, and how many umpires, ball oh. players that gravitate to musicians? Yeah, what what it's natural. It, it's what do they say? It's uh, ice cream, apple pie, and baseball. I mean, what else is there? I mean, it's it's cool. We we are so lucky that we live in the world where this is our entertainment. I mean. And uh, I remember uh, when Rick Sutcliffe pitched his first win for the Dodgers. It was in Houston at the Astrodome. So that night, we go out to Gillies. And who's performing there but Alabama, right? So, and Alabama had already had two or three number one hits. But Sherwood had bought them in a package a year early, the owner of Gillies had bought him in a package, and he's only paying him twenty five hundred to perform. Really? So they're getting forty thousand over here, and they got to go to Houston, Texas, to play for twenty five hundred. They're not really happy to be there. <laughs> so Sutcliffe met him that night, and I met him that night. Gilly took us backstage to meet him. So the next day, we're going to the ballpark at the Astrodome, and here they are standing out in the heat, waiting for Sutcliffe's tickets to come up. And I said, "What are you guys doing out here?" I said, well, Sutcliffe left his tickets, but they're not up yet. So I said, come on with me. So I took the whole band down to the umpire's locker room. They drank every beer in our locker room before the game started, right? So I sent the clubhouse guy up to get more beer, right? He came back. He said, Joe, you know how hard it is to get more beer for the umpires before the game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be an investigation. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Uh, best brush with greatness and you touched on people you've met who, who was the one person that you met that's not in baseball that really really struck a chord with you where you were you were blessed to be around them or her and, and also a person that had an impact on you as a person well you know i don't know if i told you this but jackie autry has followed my career I mean, she was president emeritus of the American League, so I, I guess she'd still be part of baseball. But uh, she sent me a nice congratulatory letter, you know, and uh, she used to say, Gene really loved you, and I'd, I'd keep telling her, you know, Jackie, uh, Gene was in the American League. I was in the National League. And, and she would say, yeah, but he liked you because you didn't take any stuff off of anybody. <laughs> I, I would agree with her on that. <laughs> and uh, But... Uh, 
Peter Ubroth probably did more for our game than anybody. He just got an, a great award from the Hall of Fame of Golf for uh, meritorious service and stuff uh, for making Pebble Beach a, a landmark. You know, he and uh, Eastwood and Dick Ferris and Palmer bought Pebble Beach, and he's kept it running where it, anybody can play. Of course, it costs you a fortune to play, but anybody can play there. But uh, he's he did so much for baseball that we don't realize. You know, he was uh, when he was commissioner. Uh, one of the first things he did was settle an umpire strike in '84 because uh, we didn't umpire the playoffs that year because they expanded it and they wouldn't pay us. So we didn't work the first games. In fact, the American League was over before the National League finished, and we don't, the the regular umpires didn't work but one game of that playoff. Anyway, the second thing he did was uh, uh, Gillette went to him and said, uh, "We've really enjoyed being the sponsor for the All Star ballot." And he said, "Well, that's a nice thing, and if you want to do it again, it'll cost you a million dollars." <laughs> so they bailed out quickly. USA Today bought it and. and and everything he did was to make money for baseball. He uh, he did the tail of the tape. Uh, every everything he did was to promote the game itself. Give me the three people off the field that's had the biggest impact on baseball during your time. Whew. Well, this guy had an impact on all sports. Is probably Walter O'Malley. If you remember, he was the first person to televise games only after they were sold out. And football bought into that immediately, that if the game's not sold out, we're not televising it. He was the first person to do that. He was the first person to draw 3 million fans. He was the first person to draw 4 million. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of people don't realize that uh, what he did to go to the West Coast was because they wouldn't let him build a dome stadium in Brooklyn. A lot of people don't know that. But the city council voted it down. So he said, well, then I'll just go somewhere else. And so he went to the West Coast, and he wanted to go to San Francisco because he was a banker. A lot of people don't realize that. He wanted to go to San Francisco. He didn't want to go to L.A. because L.A. was nothing but a, a cow town and Hollywood and orange groves. That's all it was at the time. And at the last minute, when San Francisco wouldn't give him the land to build his own stadium, he switched with Horace Stoneham, and he said, and when you show Mr. Stoneham Candlestick Point, don't show him after 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so he goes to L.A., and they give him this track of land that's in a square, and it was nothing more than a trash dump. And it had some, some homes on top of it that, uh, that they paid people at the time was a lot of money, $50,000 to move. And they gave him this property and he developed it and he brought in all these people and he was really worried about being on a fault line. So he hired these engineers and architects and all these people to look over the property and he struck oil on it. When they opened Dodger Stadium, uh, Union 76 had a gas station in center field they were the people that harvested the oil. And they said, as long as we have the rights to the only advertisement in the ballpark, we'll build the stadium for you. So they built a $65 million stadium back then in the early 60s. That was exorbitant. You know, that was, 
and he opened the ballpark and <clears throat> box seat was like eight dollars which was the highest ticket price in baseball early 60s eight dollars a lot of money right well he gave the he gave the ball club to his son 30 years later what do you think that ticket cost 30 years later a whole lot more than eight dollars no he didn't raise ticket prices really? for 30 years Really? <laughs> he thought that he could get you in there. He could there, get there your money. Other ways. <laughs> and you know what? We, we see that a lot more Yeah. where there are a lot of teams that have the discount tickets yeah. because they know you're going to buy this, you're going to buy that. Yeah. If you're with your family, you got to have that. So it, it, it makes sense. It's good marketing. Years ago, I met Garth Brooks at Roy Acuff's memorial service. And in all of Garth's contracts, he gets the first two rows of every show. It doesn't matter if it's a small nightclub or the Coliseum. He gets the first two rows. And he'll take care of everybody in the band, everybody in the roadie, whoever's working for him. He'll take care of everybody that needs tickets. And whatever's left over, he gives them to a runner. And he says, you go up that upper deck and you find a family of four or people that don't look like they can afford to be here. And you bring them right down in the first two rows. He doesn't give them their money back, but he'll move their seat to the first now you don't you don't trade you don't think those kids go out and buy everything garth brooks ever did (laughs) for the rest of their lives (laughs) for the rest of their lives all right give me two more other people who had an impact on the game on the game of baseball yeah while you were on on your watch well i think the biggest like i said the biggest guy was you broth because he taught the owners how to make money um and he suspended people that a lot of people don't know about. He suspended people for drug stuff and said, if you don't go to rehab and you don't do this and that, you're out of the game for good. And I think he suspended like 12 people. And I should let him tell you that story because he's, uh, that is his story. And uh, he believed in the sport. He believed in everything about it should be good. I mean, he'll call me when he's watching the Country Music Awards and say, can you believe how honest these people are? You know, he said, can you believe how dedicated they are? <laughs> and I mean, and he's, he's serious. I mean, it's, it's unique just, just to have a conversation with a guy. And he's, he's made more money than you and I can count. <laughs> On several occasions. Yeah. yeah, a lot of different careers Peter Uberoff has had. Yeah. But uh, years ago, there was, a, there was a restaurant in New York called Patsy's. And... Uh, the owner of Patsy's was an old Italian guy was good friends with Frank Sinatra. And he had a book in his shelf by the door where he would sell his, his uh, sauces. And uh, the book said, everything I know about Patsy's, and it had his name on it. And you open up the book, and it's 250 blank pages. <laughs> so, so I looked at it, and I saw where you could order them because you could put in what you wanted. So I bought one, and I... I I sent it. I sent one to Glenn Campbell. Everything I know about playing guitar by Glenn Campbell, and you opened it up it was two hundred fifty blank. I sent one to Merle Haggard. Everything I know about country music. I sent one to Peter Ubroth. Everything I know about the Olympics by Peter Ubroth, and he opened it up it's a two hundred fifty blank. So Peter calls me. He says, "I need another one of these." I said, "Really? Just like yours?" He says, "No, no. Everything I know about investments." I said, "Well, by who?" He said, "Warren Buffett." <laughs> You know, he, you mentioned him about making money. You know, he might have been the last Olympic chairman where the, uh, an Olympic city made money. 
because it's not really the best investment no. for a country or a city. But what he did in L.A. in 84, uh, they're still trying to model that situation. And they can't. They won't. I mean, he had all the connections. He knew all the people to call. Uh, he still says, I can't go anywhere in, uh, in Orange County, meaning Anaheim. He said, because they'll arrest me because of how much money I took from them. <laughs> <laughs> Give me one more person. Well, it's you know. You want to come back to that one? We'll you know, come back it, to it's, it. it's funny. I worked for six of the ten commissioners, and uh, one of the most interesting was Faye Vincent. And Faye became commissioner because Giamatti passed away, and uh, and it's really funny. A lot of people don't know that uh, the Pete Rose situation where he got caught for gambling. Uh, Giamatti didn't catch him. It was Ubroth. And Ubroth told him, he says, well, you know, we'll treat you like Alex Karras. You serve one-year suspension. You go to rehab. You do this, this, and this, and then you'll be back. And Rose said, I'll take my chances with Bart. <laughs> really? That, that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and then Bart died, and and and, uh, and Faye Vincent took over. And a lot of people don't realize that he was an executive for Paramount Pictures, he was an executive for uh, Coca-Cola. I mean, this guy was brilliant. I mean, years beyond what we ever think of. I mean, he was crippled as a kid, but uh, everything he did was just uh, for the game. I mean, he he, he thought like Faye Vincent. He tried to do, uh, you know, I mean, he thought like Giamatti. He, he did everything for the game. He was, and he and Giamatti were like what you'd call romanticists. And Ubroth was a realist. <laughs> Big difference. Big difference. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms, you're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. Well, Joe West, I've learned one thing about this podcast. Even though they say we don't have, we can have all the time we want, it appears that we are not going to have enough time because we got a lot of things to cover uh, during the course of this show and this podcast. And one of the things is we're going to have some fun guests that are going to join us. We're going to have a number of Hall of Famers. We're going to have some of your good friends in various mediums, uh, be it entertainment and certainly baseball. And uh, I want to talk more with you about rules down the road because there's so many things that go on in the game that maybe as we talk to people, they'll be able to watch the game differently and be able to appreciate some of the things not only you and your colleagues have done, but what people have done in making the commitment to be an umpire, whether it's little league or the major leagues, yeah, that's uh, it's it's unique when you first befriend an umpire that you now watch the game w with another aspect of it. In other words, uh, when I played, I just looked at the ball players, and when I started umpiring, I started looking at oh, how did he cover that play? How did he get to there? It's this, that, and the other, and you you realize there's a third team on the field. They're just not as many of them. <laughs> but they work just as hard as yeah, the other guys. Absolutely. Which, by the way, and, and we have enough time to talk about positioning. And for fans who go to the ball game, looking at positioning, and a lot has to do with who's on base, 
maybe the count and things of that nature. Give me three things that fans should pay attention to the next time they go to the ballpark. Well, if you if you notice, uh, since uh, the league's consolidated, put the American League and the National League together, uh, the umpires are more likely to go out on fly balls, which in the National League they didn't go out on a normal can of corn. A normal pop fly, they would just cover their base. But uh, in the influx of both leagues, they made it to where – Whoever's going to take that ball should go out on the fly ball, so you'll see them rotate in different positions. Second base umpire goes out, a third base umpire comes to second, plate umpire goes up to third, and so on and so on. But uh, a lot of the positioning is determined by how the play evolves. Like uh, I can remember when I first came to the big leagues, and the catcher went up the third base line to tag a guy. And I looked at John Kibler, I said, how do you cover that? He, he said, just follow the guy follow the catcher up the line and it makes a lot of sense because if you follow him up the line you can look right down his arm and see if he tagged him on the swipe tag but if you don't follow him the runner's going to get between you and the tag and you can't tell if he touched him or not so there's unique things and and some of this you have to feel and experience before you can do it i've had young umpires come up to me and say tell me how you take a play at first base i said i can't do that i've been doing this so long when the shortstop or the third baseman lets it go i can tell if the throw's on line so you have to experience that to understand where to get and how to get in position if it's going to be a swipe tag at first base or just a regular force play. So this is a profession where repetition oh, yeah. is huge. And, and even that play at first, and, and it's so common. We see it, what, 10, 15 times a game. But they all have a different preference as far as, as you said, paying attention because how many times has a guy who really hustles down the line is out, although it may look like he's safe, but his foot's over the bag instead yeah. of touching the bag. I mean, yeah. those are little things that we see. Yeah, and, and the crazy thing about it is the closer you get to a play, the less you see it. So there's a, a certain perspective and distance that you have to be, and you have it, that evolves with each different guy. He's going to have his comfort zone as to where he's going to be for that play. You ready to have some fun with this? I think so. I'm looking forward to it. We thank you for listening to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. For Joe West, I'm Mike Claiborne. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next time. My baby took me to the ballpark to see a baseball game. Lord, it had to be at least 99 in the shade. I was stealing a glance at some tight short pants Just as I turned my head My baby grabbed me by the arm and this is what she said If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone You better play it safe and don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me You'll be out at home. You've been listening to 5460, the Joe West Podcast, here on the Podcast Heat Network. Make sure to subscribe and don't miss an episode each and every Monday. We'll talk to you next week. She's checking all the signs While I'm enjoying two of the great American pastimes It's fouling up my nerve watching all these curves Remembering what she said to me And if I get caught looking, it's gonna be strike three.
you cheat on me, you'll be out at home. If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone. You better play it safe and don't do me wrong. Cause if you cheat on me, well, you'll be out at home. If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home. If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone. You better play it safe. And don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me You'll be out at home